Blog Talk Radio. Hey, my name is Sarah Maria Spruch. I'm from Germany, Dortmund, and I'm on the journey with Neville D'Angelo. Hey, you. Where are you going? violinist Miss Rosalind Story. On the journey we meet fascinating people with intriguing stories and novel solutions to some of life's tricky little problems. We play a few fun games too. We live. We laugh. We love. Along the way, we track unforgettable characters in three amazing books A Soundbite Life, Flight of the Fused Monkeys, and Illicit A Time to Begin Again, all three of which you can find on Amazon, Kindle, Barnes and Noble, Nook, or any of your smart devices. Our standing question today is. Where are you going? Do you know how to get there? Our guest, Miss Rosalind Story, comes to us with some impressive credits. She is a classical violinist and member of the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra. She is author of three books, her latest novel, Waiting Home, set in New Orleans, is a lyrical odyssey of love and loss, of desire and despair. And it was nominated for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, which honors exemplary works of literature before the national community of black writers. Before we ask her to share a few of the gems of this novel, let us meet her. Ms. Story, welcome to the journey. Now, where does a 10-year-old girl from Kansas City get the dream of becoming a violinist and develop the drive to become a professional musician for the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra? Um, yeah, that's interesting that you put it that way because a uh, 10-year-old girl, I was 10 the first time I think I heard a symphony orchestra, and it was the Kansas City Philharmonic, and my mother... I have a vague recollection of this, but my mother took me to hear the Kansas City Philharmonic and I remember seeing the violins, and I had just started playing the violin at school, mm-hmm. uh, and they were passing out instruments. And interestingly enough, they they actually gave um, the violins uh, to the girls. Right. You know, I mean, the girls were not encouraged to play trumpet or trombone <laughs> or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so the violins were made available to girls, and uh, and they were like seventy five cents a month, you know, and mm-hmm. and included lessons. So I wanted to play something musical. I'd always been attracted to music. Mm-hmm. Like no musicians in my family, in my background. Mm-hmm. I just out of the out of the blue, I decided I wanted to. I was attracted to it. And so when my mother took me to hear the the the, the Kansas City Philharmonic, 
I told her I was going to play in that orchestra. Yeah. Okay. Oh. And she smiled. She said, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and about, I guess, 12 years later, uh, I was 22 years old, mm-hmm. actually 21, mm-hmm. and I was in that orchestra. Ah. And that, I, you know, I've never forgotten that X. It spoke to me about the idea of visualization and dreaming, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the actual physical um, ability to dream mm-hmm. and, and to see yourself in situations. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was doing that at the time. I would never have been able to name it visualization, but I did see myself in an orchestra at Kent, mm-hmm. and it, it came true. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may call it a fluke or whatever, but and, and the fact that I've remained, that, that that thing has remained with me all these years means that I have a lot of faith okay, that in the ability somebody, to dream that way. Well, that's, that's cool. But um, So you must have had some drive uh, behind it, obviously the visualization, that, that kind of a dream, but you stuck to it. Um, now, I don't know if there were any, any trials and troubles <laughs> along the way, yeah, but I just imagine there would be. Um, yeah. Well, at the time, you have to imagine that there were no, um, you know, professional musicians of, of color in the classical music field. That's what I was thinking. And so when I was looking at this orchestra, I didn't see that, that there were no people of color in the orchestra. It never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um I just saw that they were people, and I was a person. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there were women in the orchestra, right? And I thought, well, why not me? Yeah. Um, now later on, I realized that this field was—it didn't appear to be something that African Americans were gravitating toward, mm-hmm. or that were uh, encouraged to gravitate toward. Mm-hmm. But somehow, I just thought that wouldn't be much of a barrier mm-hmm. to me. I don't know why I had the audacity to think that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got into the Kansas City Philharmonic, I was, I don't think I was the first African-American to play with the group, but I was the first African-American that I know of to play on a full-time basis. Uh-huh. My teacher at the time, when I was 10, well, actually, when, much later, um, talking about junior high school, mm. orchestra teacher, uh, Leon Brady, had played percussion at, on a substitute basis with that same orchestra. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't a full-time member. So I think I was the first uh, full-time uh, player of color with that orchestra. Do you think um, the fact that when you first saw that uh, orchestra, that you saw just people rather right. than colors of people, uh, helped to to keep the, the whole dream alive? Well, you or? know, kids don't see the things that, okay. you know, I didn't see barriers and obstacles. Okay. I just saw possibilities. Right. I think those are the, the barriers and obstacles we learn as we get older. And <laughs> yeah. I think that we, we limit ourselves by, uh, we limit our dreams by seeing, oh, saying, oh, my goodness, well, there's nobody who looks like me there, so obviously I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I think that comes later. I think we learn that. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a shame. But in our in my naivete of being ten years old, and, and I actually my role model was um, it's our Perlman. I used to watch the Ed Sullivan show and see really? him, and he was Jewish and he had polio. He was nothing like me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was a magical player, and mm. and I thought, wow, I just want to play like that. You know? mm. So I, I you know I studied and I majored in, in music at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And Got my first job with the Kansas City Philharmonic. As I said, I, when I graduated, the same year that I graduated, I think that fall, mm-hmm. uh, I was in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I played in two orchestras uh, since then. The, the second orchestra was the Tulsa Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. And then the third one, the, the current my current job is with the Fort Worth Symphony. Did you have the total support of your parents? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot, a lot of... Uh, 
budding musicians and artists, they always face this question, you know, when are you going to study something that will get you a job? Did I you? never had that. My Good. parents, and I don't know, I think, I wonder about that, because my parents, my parents were basically both high school graduates. Yeah. My father uh, graduated from a high school that was like maybe 12 people, 12 kids, mm. in the Deep South in the 1920s. Mm. Uh, and his schooling beyond high school was basically carpentry and, and and getting certified to become a, a cement, you know, a cement finisher, mm-hmm. masonry, that kind of work, mm-hmm. and then became a steel worker. Mm-hmm. My mother uh, graduated from high school uh, and took cosmetology mm-hmm. and then raised her children. Mm-hmm. So there was there were not any kind of professional um, ideas stamped into me that you must think about doing a job that would get you into a career and mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. None of that was put upon me. That's good. Um, That's good. It was all about, you know, what do you want to do? What makes you, we'll, we'll, make, we'll get all your needs, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't know anything about classical music at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had known that they saw it on TV like I did. They thought it was cool that I was doing it. You know, it was a really nice thing that their daughter was doing this. But, um, and they were, my parents were, many of might say, naive too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because they didn't know that much about it, they didn't know about it the careers and the fact that there were not that many jobs in New African Americans. They never thought about that either, any mm-hmm. more than I did. Mm-hmm. So they were not limiting me either. Okay. Tell us about the Sphinx. Oh, the Sphinx competition for right. the orchestra, yeah. That's mm-hmm. a wonderful uh, program. Uh, a young man named Aaron Dworkin, mm-hmm. um, who I, I think he was 24 years old when he discovered, um, actually um, came up with the idea to have a competition for the African American and Latino um, string players, mm-hmm. and he was a violinist at the University of Michigan, and he was a grad student, mm-hmm. and he was just tired of of being the only African American that he saw at these competitions and mm-hmm. all these orchestras, and, and thought there must be more people like me around. And he decided at 24 to get some funding. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually worked at the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. put together this competition, and uh, long story short, um, the competition has been going on for. 13 or 14 years now. I think this is the 15th year, I think. Is it right. Right. Or the 15th, it's probably 14 years, you're right. No, uh, I really don't know, you probably didn't hear a research as well as mine. But he, uh, a few years ago, won the McCarthy Genius mm-hmm. Award, mm-hmm. grant, mm-hmm. Uh, fellowship, whatever it's called, mm-hmm. um, because he's done so much in, in terms of bringing classical music right. to people who would never, never otherwise have access to it. And by that I mean musicians, mm-hmm. young people who want to play and compete, as well as audiences mm-hmm. of color. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty amazing thing what he's done at at a very very young age too. Mm. What advice would you give either to budding musicians um, or to parents who are thinking of introducing their children to uh, music, whether it's orchestral music or you know a particular um, what instrument? Would you- well, I don't have anything unique and interesting and unusual to say about that. Mm-hmm. Same old things. Work hard. <laughs> practice. Right. Not much else. Uh, you really have to, it has to be a passion, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like I'm spotting cliches, but the mm-hmm. cliches are the things that really, you really have to do those things. Mm-hmm. You have to practice a lot. You have to um, not let anybody stop you. Not any obstacles or any lack of money or lack of encouragement or whatever. You have to just go... It's the same thing that applies to any other any other kind of dream that you want to fulfill. Mm-hmm. You have to just get the training mm-hmm. um, and be willing to put yourself out there to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't 
I don't know. I just, that's all I can say about that. That's, that's all that there is. Sounds like pretty solid advice to me. Have a passion or develop a passion. Visualize where you want to go, what you want to be. Get the training. Practice, practice, practice. Lock away all the excuses and throw away the key. Kick aside the obstacles. Kick it, shove it, climb over it, go around it, blast it to smithereens. Stay the course until you get there. Sounds like pretty solid advice to me. Well, Rosalind, this is your third book, Waiting Home. Uh, your first uh, sparked a, a special PBS program. Can you tell us about your first book? The first book was called And So I Sing, mm-hmm. African-American Divas of Opera and Concert. Uh-huh. And so how did that come about? That was a book that came out of um, an experience I had when I was playing in the Tulsa Philharmonic mm-hmm. um, many years ago. And I was playing uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the, the orchestra which is also part of the Tulsa Opera. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, I've just begun to start writing. Uh, it's a long story, but not a very interesting one. But I decided I was going to write, you know, have you, you know, you journal for a while and you mm-hmm. write these little essays. Well, I took my essays and my journal writings to uh, a Black Weekly, the mm-hmm. Oklahoma Eagle in Tulsa, because I wanted to write. I thought, well, if I don't try it now, when am I going to do it? And I basically said, I would like to write for your paper. I had time. The orchestra didn't take up a lot of time at that time. So um, they allowed me to write for them mm-hmm. during the daytime, and we had rehearsals at night. Mm-hmm. So um, I uh, was was asked by the paper that I was working for to um, do a story about a young woman, African-American opera singer named Leona Mitchell, mm-hmm. who was coming back to Tulsa to... Um, Perform an Aida, mm. the opera by Verity. Right. Uh, she plays the, the, the Ethiopian um, queen. Right. Mm. And um, she's held captive and all this stuff. Anyway, so she, uh, this young lady, Elena Mitchell, was from the area. She was returning home after having a great success in um, in Europe and all over the world, basically, in metropolitan opera. Mm-hmm. And she had come from this little small town in Oklahoma. So there was a story there. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the story about her for the paper. And uh, while I was, you know, rehearsing with the orchestra and the opera, I would go to during the intermission, talk to this lady, and, and write my. It was kind of like the twofold purpose. I was playing and right. and, and writing. Mm-hmm. So um, the story ran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and researching that story, I learned that there was very little material written about African American opera singers mm-hmm. and their history. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there were no books or anything like that. So I thought, well. Somebody should write a book about this. So <laughs> I proposed a book. I got a book contract. Mm-hmm. I had never written a book before. Didn't know how to do it. I went to the library and got a book on how to write books. <laughs> okay. And I got a proposal. Right. I got an agent. Right. Mm-hmm. He had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. He would speak to my own naivete. And sometimes naivete is a good thing. Right. Yeah. Because you don't limit yourself. So 
I just went forward and I came up with the book and I, I wrote this book and it came out uh, from Warner Books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that book um, came out in the early 1990s and um, and it, it kind of landed in the hands of this couple, a German production team. Mm-hmm. And I, I got a call on the clear blue sky one day saying, We've come across your book. We'd like to make a PBS do- a documentary about it. They mm-hmm. didn't say PBS. They didn't know where they, where it would be shown. Mm-hmm. So I said sure. So they took me up to New York, and <laughs> I you know, they kind of wind down me. We did the mm-hmm. we did the program, and and then uh, it ran uh, on PBS in, in various cities. Mm-hmm. And then I began to hear friends t- c- calling on from all over the country, saying, "We just saw your documentary." They were like in New York, or you know. My nephew saw it in, in a motel on, on TV in some city he was in, and my, one of my conductors said he was in New Zealand and he saw it on the air. You know, I mean, so it it just um, uh, it went out and had its life. Mm-hmm. But that was a, a pretty wonderful experience. And mm-hmm. what that allowed um, me to experience was having your book have a life beyond just the written page. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and I think it's still run today as a special that people air during Black History Month during February mm-hmm. because it speaks to the cultural history of African Americans and things people don't really know that much about, the history right. of African American opera singers, that they were that they were prominent in the 19th century, that some of them were former slaves and ended up singing classical music, mm-hmm. that the uh, greatest artists uh, of classical music in the 1990s were two black women, Kathleen Battle and, and Jesse Norman, that Mary Anderson broke down the barriers in the 1930s and 40s and mm-hmm. was the most um, important singer on the planet for a while, mm-hmm. um, and that she sang before the Lincoln Memorial for 75,000 people because she was refused access to Constitution Hall. Right. Mm-hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt got involved and that she uh, kind of opened the doors for not just uh, African American classical music but for all of the fields of endeavor too. So there's a lot of story there. And it allowed that story to go out around the world. Mm-hmm. Now that you kept writing, you didn't stop, was uh, how did you move on from that book to your second book? Well in writing nonfiction, mm-hmm. and I'd only written nonfiction at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've always been a great reader of novels. Mm-hmm. Not a fast reader, but I loved novels. Mm-hmm. And I always loved uh, language. Mm-hmm. And I, it was an attempt to, this whole idea of toying with fiction was an attempt to get my nonfiction writing to read more richly, mm-hmm. to have a more narrative uh, flow mm-hmm. to it, mm-hmm. um, to be more imagistic and, and and, and kind of conjure up images for the reader mm-hmm. to have uh, just to be better at what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, when you do uh, tell nonfiction stories as if they were fiction, uh, people pay attention. You know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah. uh, so I wanted to have that kind of richness to my writing. Mm-hmm. And I always just I just wanted to challenge myself. I just wanted to see if I could do it. Mm-hmm. So I began writing um, a story. Um, more Than You Know was my first novel. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who had had success at a novel. Her name is Maxine Clare. She wrote a book called Rattlebone. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I met her. I met yeah. her and I read her book. Yes, oh, yeah. yes, yes. And so uh, yeah. Maxine yeah. Clare grew up, she was a, a bit older than I was, but we grew up in the same neighborhood in Kansas mm-hmm. City, Kansas. Mm-hmm. All black section of this small town. Right. And her success with uh, Rattlebone inspired me. Right. And I thought, well, here's somebody who looks like me, <laughs> who's, doing, who's doing something very special. Right. I, I wanted to try that. So 
I and also I, from a practical point of view, I realize that nonfiction you got to get on planes and spend money to right. travel and do research. Right. And I thought naively again that I could just uh, make up a story in my bedroom, <laughs> get a book contract. Uh-uh. That would be easy, and uh, it, would, it would it would be cheaper. <laughs> so, it wasn't quite that. No, it doesn't. No, had to do research. Right, right. Uh, but yes, I did go into uh, my bedroom and, and mm-hmm. came up with a story. But I also I also had to do some a fair amount of research in both novels. Both. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sing. Oh, well, not so. And so I sing, but. Uh, more than you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the novel that came after that too. Well, we we want to we want to talk about Waiting Home, uh, a novel that is set in New Orleans during the time of uh, Katrina. How did w- Waiting Home come to your heart? And tell us the, a little bit about the story, and then we'll get into it. Well, Waiting Home uh, is kind of comes out of the experience of writing more than you know. Mm. They're both books where jazz is very important. And I'm a big lover of jazz, even mm. though I was trained in classical music. Mm-hmm. Being from a Kansas City, which is a very well-known city, where it has you know very, very much steeped in, in jazz history, mm-hmm. has a lot of of uh, jazz roots. So um, mm-hmm. Count Basie is from the area. Charlie Parker mm-hmm. uh, went to the same high school that I attended. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary Lou Williams, a great jazz pianist, mm-hmm. lived there. Uh, so there's a history there of jazz um, that is not as powerful as New Orleans, mm-hmm. but Kansas City was one of those pivotal points on the uh, kind of jazz timeline or, or the roadmap of jazz as it came up from the deep south, mm-hmm. up the Mississippi River, actually in the case of Kansas City, the Missouri River, <laughs> uh, Kansas City, the Chicago, and on to New York, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I heard a lot of jazz when I was a, a kid in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to would sneak into the clubs and at, at underage mm-hmm. and not to drink so much, although I might indulge in the occasional. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I think it was Harvey Wallbanger or whatever, or <laughs> maybe just a wine cooler. Right. Uh, and, and But I really went there to hear the music. Because mm-hmm. I had friends who were playing in some of these clubs, and I just loved jazz. And um, so I wanted to um, do a couple of things. I loved opera music. I loved the the um, contributions of African American women and men to mm-hmm. opera. And mm-hmm. so my first book was an homage homage to that. But because I love jazz so much too, I wanted to do a book that I could sort of play with different kinds of music, mm-hmm. and also. Um, let that kind of music influence my writing. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of making words sing, mm-hmm. uh, making words and sentences have rhythm mm-hmm. and cadence and that sort of thing. So I wanted to play around with that. And so uh, while I was going to New York, as I did pretty often to research, and so I sing, I came across this uh, jazz saxophone player who was playing on the steps of uh, the New York Public Library, the second, I think it's 52nd Street. Um, and he would just play there with his case open, hoping to get money from people passing by. And it actually was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at him and I thought, I wonder what his story is. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder what he's left behind. Why is he on the street? Is he homeless? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many musicians on the street in New York. Right. I wasn't used to seeing that, though. So, I created this whole, I fabricated this whole life of this musician that I didn't know anything about. I never talked to him, mm-hmm. but I decided that he 
you know, he had a wife that he left behind in Kansas City, and it was a wreck of a marriage, and it was a secret that was keeping them apart, and all this stuff, and that she had history, and he had history. Anyway, so I created this novel, mm-hmm. and um, after a it was actually a few years it took me to writing and rewriting um, that the novel actually came out. Mm-hmm. So um, it came out, I think, um, in 2004. Mm-hmm. So after that came out in 2005, I still wasn't done with that whole idea of jazz music. And I'd been going to New Orleans pretty often mm-hmm. just to have a good time. You know, I'd drive down there with a girlfriend and we just would hang out in the, in the French Quarter and do our thing, but I was, and even though I loved having a great time there, I was always attracted to the culture, the layers of culture of New Orleans, and what a great place mm-hmm. to have a story set. I mean, there's so many great novels that were set there, Confederacy of Dunces, mm-hmm. uh, the movie, movie Goer by um, Walker, the Walker Percy, um, and, and many other novels too, so it's the kind of place that can be a character in itself. Mm-hmm. And it has like these, and these, all these influences of the Haitian, the Creole, the, the African, mm-hmm. the, the, the French, the, the Irish, the German, the Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all these kind of cultures mixed together, and they get this amazing food, mm-hmm. amazing music, these layers of architecture, all this history. And plus the fact that for African Americans, it's one of the places where uh, in the 1800s, there were free people of color living there. Mm-hmm. Like they had, weren't able to live anywhere else, mm-hmm. and uh, even those who were not free, the people people who were enslaved, get got Sundays off, mm-hmm. and then would go to a place called Congo Square, and mm-hmm. they would dance and sing and create what we now know to be the kind of blueprint for jazz music. Mm-hmm. So uh, living in a Kent, in Kansas City, which was a jazz town, mm-hmm. and wanting to get to the root of the beginnings of jazz and and, and and have a, a city that's even more powerfully connected to jazz than my hometown, Kansas City, was. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just a, re- a really rich place to explore in terms of, of, of a, a book. So um, so I went there early in 2005 and started gathering material, went there with a friend. We kind of we walked around and hung out and had a great time. And I was constantly taking notes and putting together uh, information for characters, etc. Mm-hmm. Came back and started writing. Um, and then months passed. I had about 50 pages or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the hurricane, Katrina, happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had to scrap the whole story Mm -hmm. uh, and start over. Mm -hmm. Uh, But first I decided, because I didn't know whether there would even be a city to set a novel in. I think people were talking about, is there going to be a New Orleans? This was actually a real conversation Mm -hmm. that was being had in New Orleans and outside of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Is this city going to continue? And it was in doubt for a while. I felt like it would. Uh, and uh, because I'd been there and I'd seen those people, mm-hmm. and I'd seen how tied they were to that place, mm-hmm. and even though the news media were saying, you know, there's talk about making it smaller or not making it, uh, rebuilding it all, et cetera, I had a feeling that it'd be something, there would be something that would take off and grow again. In fact, I was saying to people that there's going to be a Mardi Gras in 2005. And they were saying, what? You're kidding. <laughs> and there was. Uh, you uh, know, people uh, in New Orleans uh, will not be <laughs> discouraged <laughs> from keeping that tide of tradition going. Right. Uh, so I, I went down and, and started volunteering. I went down about eight times in over a year or so, maybe a couple years. But I began writing another story. Mm-hmm. And I used the Hurricane Katrina as a backdrop. And I 
met people, and those people became um, put together with other people to form composite characters. And, and I learned stories about people leaving and getting on buses and going to far parts of, of the country and not knowing where they were going to end up or how they were never going to get back home and how they were going to get back home. And some people would stay away six months. They'd have, they'd been, they would stay in somebody's basement here and somebody's extra bedroom there or a church basement or whatever. And then they would come back home months later not knowing how to start again. Right. But they would figure out a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that became um, the basis for my story, Waiting Home. It's a story of a father and son with that experience of the, the son is living away from home. He's mm-hmm. grown up in New Orleans. Um, his father and he. His father is in, in New Orleans. He's a retired right. chef. Mm-hmm. The father is very much a part of the old school tradition. Right. He lives you know, he's bound to the land. He has land in, in the rural part of Louisiana that is passed down from father to son since slavery was over. And he's very much a traditionalist. And the son is out there just making his living and having a great time trying to become famous, mm-hmm. very much chasing a dream, chasing the dollar, et cetera, and, and just having a great time, full of ego mm-hmm. and, and full of himself, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, the storm happens, and this father and son who have had been had been in conflict about many things, not the least of which was whether the father should leave, right. like he had good sense, <laughs> and the son is trying to convince him to. Anyway, mm-hmm. so the, the father is left behind in the mm-hmm. storm. The son has to come home and try to find his father. Mm-hmm. But in trying to find his father, he finds a little bit of himself. He finds his family history. He finds what the meaning of home really is, what the meaning of family really is, what's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, he learns about the power of history in, in his life. So the beginning of the book, of course, is it's right in the kitchen, obviously, because he's he's a chef. Beautiful writing, I must say. Thank you. Uh, what what um, was that? Why did you start there, in the kitchen? Why did you? Oh, that's a great question. Hmm. No one's asked me that question. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Why in the kitchen? You know, I, it always started. Every draft that I did, mm-hmm. it was always Simon in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I just imagine... I mean, I, it was very visual to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could just see the shotgun house mm-hmm. in somewhere in in Treme, which is the oldest section, oldest African American neighborhood, mm-hmm. reportedly in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I set my novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's a little bit north of the French Quarter, across Rampart Street, if mm-hmm. you know New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and more about that later, if you want to talk about the history of. Of that area, Please, yes. but uh, but Treme is the the section of town that that Simon uh, lives in, mm-hmm. and I just could see him uh, stirring a pot, mm-hmm. of, a, you know, a big pot of, of red beans and rice. Right. It's his specialty, right, right. and I just feel the steam heat that mm-hmm. filling up this this kitchen, mm-hmm. and the linoleum on the floor, and, mm-hmm. and the windows looking out to the yard, and the live oak trees, and the breeze with the storm is, is coming, but not quite present yet, and the clouds shifting. And, and the mixture of the kind of the gray clouds and the steam heat of the kitchen and, and the, the aroma of these red beans and rice. And I just thought that's where I want to begin the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I New Orleans is a great place for food, and that's part of the culture. Mm-hmm. So he's mixing this pot, and he's waiting. He's waiting for the storm to come. He's waiting to, to see what's going to happen between him and his son. They've had a conversation that did not go well. Mm-hmm. Um He's reflecting on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He leaves the kitchen and his red beans. He's actually preparing a meal that will carry him over to the next day. Right. He thinks it's going to be nothing more than maybe a power outage, right. Right. you know, and, and not having the use of his stove. Mm-hmm. But really, it's, a, it's much more than that.
Now, now it is a love story on several different levels, mm-hmm. is, isn't it? Primarily the love between the father and, and the son. And the son, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is what I was trying to get at. And, mm-hmm. and that is a, a thing where you have this father and son are just diametrically opposed. One is old-fashioned and older and mm-hmm. belongs to that old, wonderful um, school of, of African-American men who come out of this period where they were gentlemen, they were somewhat well-educated, but mostly just very cultured and respectful of women. They took care of women. They took care of the children. They were the breadwinners. Mm-hmm. They um, tipped their hat to the ladies, but they were a little bit flirtatious. Mm-hmm. They were church-going men. They mm-hmm. sang in the choir. They made sure that the, their wife's car was running and all these things. And mm-hmm. this is the guy who Simon is. And then you have this uh, young man who has learned all of these things from his father, but he's gone to New York where the women that he's going out with mm-hmm. don't wait for him to open the car door. <laughs> and he's baffled by this. And then he says, yes, ma'am, and no, sir, they look at him like he's crazy. And what do you mean, yes, ma'am, no, sir? I mean, he brings his seven ways to the big city, mm-hmm. and he has to kind of bring a little bit of his father's training with him. But he is ready to go with the new thing. Right. Um, so, so you have this conflict between the father and son. That's one love story. Mm-hmm. And then the love story between the people of New Orleans and their city, which right. I think is evident, and the mm-hmm. fact that the city is still going after mm-hmm. these many years of trying to recover. Mm-hmm. Uh, the land mm-hmm. uh, of Silver Creek, you know, and, and the family of, of, of the Fortier family and their love for the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the, the final love story between Julian, the pro- protagonist, uh, and, and his um, used-to-be fiancé in love, Zomira, right. mm-hmm. which is a love that is halted for many reasons and is revisited because the storm brings in the Actually, the storm brings all of these loves to a different level. Waiting Home. Before Miss Story reads us a passage from the book reflecting the New Orleans tradition of dealing with death and life, I just want to remind you that our standing question today is Where are you going? Follow the Journey's blog. Its URL is matchboxmystery.wordpress.com. Matchboxmystery is one word. Matchboxmystery.wordpress.com. The Journey is available free on iTunes. Share the gems our guests share with us. Our email address is jps at riosports.com. Follow me on Twitter. Play the game. Pick up one of our prizes. Here is Miss Story reading a passage from Waiting Home. On a cloudless morning beneath a brilliant sun, a shout of brass and a rhythmic rumble of drums split the hot, thick air. No one knew exactly when the tradition got started, the funereal cadence, the somber march in slow, studied steps, the swell of trumpets and trombones wailing a mournful cry before escorting the departed soul to a jubilant release. But of the music source there was no doubt. Born on a breeze that swept across the African plains, it winged west to the cotton fields of America and seated itself in the soul of the South. It slumbered through the long night of slavery, stirred in the hopeful air of campground meetings and Sunday morning witness prayer circles before finding life and bread in the beating heart of New Orleans. The marriage of jazz and funerals may have been an unlikely pairing, but once done, 
the love match was as much a part of life in the city as the river that shouldered its shore. In singles, in pairs, and in small clusters, the mourners gather at the St. Louis Cathedral near Jackson Square. When the short service ends, strings of just a closer walk with thee roll out, elegant and elegiac, as a procession of bandsmen, friends, and a small knot of family from out of town, and the stately black hearse begins from the cathedral down the cobbled streets of the Blue Carré. The mourners are many, but when the music starts, dozens more who have never heard of the deceased straggle out of the reopened bars and restaurants to join the procession, longing for what has been missing in the city since the flood, the martial roll and snap of snare drums, the blast of trumpets, and the gritty growl of trombones, the deep blat of the sousaphone, and the booming thump of the bass drum, and later, after the soul's full release, the strut and swagger of second liners, footsteps high and arms waving, shoulders shaking, their flared umbrellas lifted, their white handkerchiefs like linen doves fluttering high above their heads. Leading the musicians of soul fire, Julian lifts his horn in the air to signal a turn at the corner, and the notes and chords of just a closer walk with thee come out so easily it is like spelling out his name. He spreads his shoulders as his tone swells in the open blue, and the other bandsmen follow his lead as he is testifying now, blowing clean and pure as if there is no bulk of brass, as if the shiny coil of metal is just a conduit for the song in his soul. The music filling the air around them, they stroll on for blocks before turning on to Esplanade. When finally the hearse picks up speed, breaks away from the group, and heads toward the highway, the group of mourners, now numbering more than a hundred, circle around to head back to the square, and the bass drum thumps out a livelier beat. Now it's time to cut the body loose as the band breaks into an upbeat, I'll fly away, and the second liners, the friends and strangers and family stepping behind the band, start to sing as mournful dirge becomes exultant dance. Some glad morning when my life is over, I'll fly away. The bells and slides of horn, horns once low or level, now tilt upward to the trees and balconies of the quarter and the blazing sun, and the trumpets let out a joyful scream, and the trombones peal in a gritty moan, and the snares and bass drums snap and boom in tight two-four time. Horns swinging side to side, the bandsmen declare every man for himself now, each flying high in his own groove, wrapping their notes around each other's in a hot embrace. Keys abandon, harmony and dissonance squabbling like irascible lovers, notes locking horns and bumping heads, and nobody caring. And for a brief speck on the long arc of time, they have all forgotten, hearts unburdened, Minds swept clean, no flood, no broken levees, no death, no drowned city, only grief drowned by song, only the triumph of a trumpet lifted to the sky. Defiant against the mad turns of fate, hopeful against all reason, the revelers pick up their heels, their umbrellas, their skirts, and in a rocking sea of rhythm, dance their troubles away.
Thank you, Ms. Story, for sharing your book with us. Well, we here on The Journey have our own little uh, tradition. We ask each of our guests to answer a particular question. In one of the books, A Soundbite Life, that we are tracking on The Journey, the sage said this, Everyone living long enough will slip and fall into a deep hole, get stuck and look up for help. Three hands will appear. The hand of a hustler, the hand of a riddler, and the hand of a clown. Choose wisely or be buried there. This is what we ask each of our guests to do. Tell us which hand you will choose and why. Well, I would choose the hand of the clown. I think humor is vastly underrated. Mm-hmm. And more than anything, if I'm in a hole, I want to be able to see the humor in my situation. Mm-hmm. And the clown would hopefully point that out to me. Mm-hmm. And so through humor, I would be able to take a deep breath and say, well, maybe it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. My blood pressure would go down, you know, <laughs> after the good joke or whatever. And maybe uh, after after laughing a bit, after relaxing a little bit and seeing the humor, humor in my situation, there's always humor, I think, mm-hmm. at the core of many things. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear people laughing uh, in the most unusual situations when they should be crying. Mm-hmm. Um, but the laughter is a release. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind of energy. It is buoyant. It lifts you up. And I think I would hope that the the clown could somehow get me out of that hole with the humor. Great, great. Well, thank you very much. I'm so glad that you spent the time to be with us, and I hope that you will be willing to come and share some more of your work with us. Thank you. You can find Miss Story's book, Waiting Home, at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any one of your favorite uh, bookstores. So where are you going? Do you know how to get there? We encourage you to pick up one of the books we are tracking, A Soundbite Life, Flight of the Fused Monkeys, or Illicet, A Time to Begin Again. You can find them at Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, uh, for your Nook or your Kindle or any of your smart devices. You might also pick up a free copy of one of the books we have featured, if you can answer this question. Which hand... Will you choose? Email your answer, that is jps at ryosports.com. jps at r-y-o-s-p-o-r-t-s dot com. Make sure your answer is no longer than a tweet. Which hand will you choose? Uh, We will pick one of you and uh, send you... Your favorite book, A Soundbite Life, In a Set of Time to Begin Again, or Flight 
of the Fused Monkeys. to know where you're going and have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.